The next interviewee of Toby Haydock's Who's Round is required. Bring him here. Well, we've been very kindly housed in the Crown Pub in Twickenham, which I'm going to plug because they've given us a quiet corner and turned the music off. But that's thanks largely to a recce, a recce that has been done by my next victim, who's, um, who's made this far more organised than it would have been if I'd just done it. So uh, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, um, my name is Michael Ferguson. Um, I'm a little bit worried about the introduction citing me as a victim. You told me this was going to be nice and gentle and I didn't have a thing to worry about. <coughs> but um, I'm delighted to see you again, Toby, after several years, I think, or was it last year? It was la- last year we did Out yeah. of the Unknown, we've wasn't met it? up for yeah. um, residual <laughs> uh, affairs to do with Doctor Who, mostly to do with uh, looking back on various episodes and recalling anecdotes and so forth and so on, and uh, which I've always enjoyed. I've done quite a few of them, and uh, always enjoyed meeting up because you get to meet up with people you've worked with in the past and circumstances which um, uh, give us a commonality, and, and, and unlikely that you probably meet certainly the same group of people anywhere else at any other time, even at the most expensive Doctor Who parties these days, because uh, we're getting less and less. Well, that's, I, say, I have to say that's been part of the joy of, of my sort of extracurricular Doctor Who career, mm. is, is being with people when, for example, on a DVD commentary, you might see somebody you, you hadn't seen since, and seeing people pick up. Because that's the yeah. thing about this business, yes. isn't it? Yes. You pick up after 30 years where you left off. Yes, yes. It's uh, something I've always loved about it. I've always seen actors and acting um, as one big village um, with lots of people, but it's such a big village, you don't actually know everybody. And very often you don't see somebody for quite a while. But there is a commonality, there's a, a family feel about actors. Um, which I think television had a lot to do with helping along as rep theatres were beginning to close their doors, sadly, and there's very few, if any, left now. But television was very good at creating families, sometimes short-term, sometimes long-term, like EastEnders, which I worked on for a long time. That was very much a family. It was about families, and it itself was a family. And I think that doesn't happen on... Uh, one-off films nearly so much because a lot of actors turn up, just get, do the fittings, um, go to a rehearsal, and then turn up, uh, made to sit in a, ca- in a bus somewhere for three or four hours, and then um, get called out and do 20 minutes' work and go home and uh, get a cheque for quite a lot of money for, for doing it. But there's no, no family feel ever. It's very unusual. Um, I, I've always tried when I've done television films, one-off, to try and get the whole cast together early on uh, and get them to know each other so they don't spend too much time... so they can get to know each other and remind each other of anecdotes that they've shared and people that they've known and so forth and so on. And in a way, get that over with. So they feel, And when they do come up and just sit around for three hours waiting to do 20 minutes, um, they will feel part of the whole rather than just a, a guest who's popped in rather than a family member. 
whenever you're interviewed about Doctor Who, I'm sure the first question is, how did you start working on Doctor Who? I'm actually quite interested in how you got to the point before <laughs> you started working on Doctor Who. So what was your background and was, was a, a life in drama an inevitability? Uh, well, I, in a way, I have to thank the war. I was born three years before the war into a world which was tense and grey and miserable and frightened. And my father was in the fire service. He'd already joined the fire service three years before the war started. Um, and it was then called the Auxiliary Fire Service, and then when the war started, became the National Fire Service. Uh, my mother had always just been a housewife and mother. And uh, the war was particularly tense in a way for her, I think, because all right, m many wives and daughters and sons and people saw their father or husband go off to the war with no idea when they may hear from them again. My mother always expected to hear or to see my father at the end of the day or at first thing in the morning when he got back. And um, some, I suppose the fear was he wouldn't come back. He was in the Blitz in London um, and ended up a senior fire force commander. So that was the, the environment that I was born into. As a kid, the war was quite fun, actually, because uh, we used to go out and we used to look for bits of shrapnel that got stuck in trees, and we used to find long rolls of aluminium tape that uh, our aircraft dropped to try and mess up the enemy's radar and so on. There's a lot of, a lot of associate, war associated things which I remember very well, very vividly. But anyway, it, was a, 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 it wasn't a very happy world. And I think I've got the facts right, but it's immaterial. My mother took me to see a matinee of a pantomime, Cinderella, at Wimbledon Theatre. And I sat in the audience not knowing what to expect, never been to the theatre before, I was probably about seven or eight at the time, the, by now, and the curtain, first of all, there was a lot of music, and the curtain went up, and there was a lot of jollity, and people started laughing, and it was all very exciting and very wonderful and very different from what was outside the theatre's doors. And I somehow felt, I want to be part of that. I want some of that fun and that jollity and everything else. So I decided that I was going to be an actor. Um, and then I went to uh, King's College School in Wimbledon. And uh, there was a strong dramatic society there which uh, for both the junior and the seniors, and I was very much part of that at all stages, uh, and started directing um, in the playground. I started putting little shows together while we were having our 15-minute morning and afternoon breaks. I was directing little, little shows between the two trees side of the playground to create a kind of feeling of a theatre. And I decided to be a director because I realised pretty quickly that being the director was much the best job. You got to tell what other people to do and I thought that that's what it was about and that's what I wanted to do. So um, I then uh, joined a lot of a, a lot of local amateur dramatic societies. Um, there was a big one which did big productions at Wimbledon Town Hall and there were other smaller ones, amateur ones around the place who did them in church halls and so on. And I did a lot of that. The net result of all of this was that I struggled to get five O-levels. I had to sit two of them twice because I had given far more of my attention <laughs> to, to learning lines and thinking about being a director. Uh, and then I went into the army uh, and 
my national service, in, first of all in Cyprus and then in North Africa, the great bonus of North Africa was that there was an Army Dramatic Society based there, run most of my offices. I was by then a sergeant, not having the degree, for reasons I've already explained, to become an officer. Um, but we did uh, Seagulls over Sorrento, and I played the Scottish character. Not that I'm Scottish, but I have a Scottish name, so that apparently gave me the part. Um, and I just played a small part in the Browning version, and we did lots of other things. But further along from uh, Tripoli, the town of Tripoli, uh, where we were stationed, there was a Roman amphitheatre, a place called Sobrata. And uh, I went to visit it because we, it was wonderful, actually. The regime at <coughs> uh, where I was garrisoned was that we got up pretty early, but uh, we had lunch, I think, at 1 o'clock, and then the rest of the day was your own, more or less. So there was plenty of free time. And another uh, fellow, an actor, David Harris, who I think is still around. Yeah, yeah, a very um, vivid actor, yes, I would yeah, say. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he and I went, I think we cycled out there, actually, uh, to this Roman amphitheatre. I said, right, let's do Oedipus Rex there. He said, what? <laughs> let's, let's, let's do, let's use this theatre. And... Well, yes. And I went to the Dramatic Society and said, this is what I, I think we should do. And they said, well, who's going to do this? And I said, I am. And we did it. We did it. Um, we got it together. We had, as necessary in a Greek tragedy, an op uh, a chorus of 12 people and a cast of, uh, I think it's seven named parts. Interestingly, I discovered much more recently that uh, the Greeks themselves, only three actors were allowed to speak, and they would play a part with a mask and everything else, and then run off stage and put on some other mask and change the dress and run back on again the other side. Um, and that's how Greek theatre worked. And I th thought, I don't think I'll do it that way. I think we'll give as many people parts as we can. Anyway, we rehearsed Selfish actors <laughs> from time <laughs> Anyway, we did, so we did one performance of this. It was heavily advertised, this uh, amphitheatre, which by then, of course, had lost about... Ten rows, and like they all do, uh, but it was pretty well packed. A lot of people had driven out two or three miles, and the, w w I had this great coup de théâtre, which I've always been quite proud of. Is that at the end of Oedipus Rex, the king goes off, his mother has hanged herself, and he puts out his own eyes by stabbing them with the uh, with the buckle of his. Tunic, and um, so I timed it so that that would happen at the very point where the sunset, because the sunset in the Mediterranean, like a lot of southern countries, goes very quickly, and it happened, and it was quite astonishing because suddenly everybody was in the dark, the whole audience, and, and I played the messenger. I g gave the best part of myself, <laughs> or the best supporting part of myself, yeah. and I ran on as the messenger to t tell all this news about. Uh, what had happened backstage because it was part of Greek theatre that you never saw the bad bits you were only told about them yes so um, then I c came back uh, after my two years and wanted to go to drama school not really wanting to be an actor so much as wanting to be a director and I auditioned at RADA and uh, was not accepted for that I also simultaneously auditioned at Lambda and was accepted. I told them why, and they were quite interested. Um, and I was there 
with uh, a number of people like Janet Sutzman and uh, Donald Sutherland was there wow. at the same time as me. Um, and I then did a year, uh, in uh, two years actually, uh, with a children's theatre company called Theatre Centre, which we toured around in a grey, big grey van, rattled around all over the country, visiting schools by appointment, um, and setting up a, a very simple stage of rostrum and stuff, and doing a junior play, which was full of audience participation, because Brian Way, who ran it, um, was very con interested in the use of drama in education. Uh, we also did a, a senior play, which might, was probably an adaptation of Dickens or something, and things like that. And I did, did, certainly did that tour for a couple of years. And while I was there, um, I read in the stage magazine that the BBC was about to launch a new channel called BBC Two, uh, and they had realised they needed to staff an entire <laughs> organisation. Uh, so they were very open to uh, candidates. So I applied to be uh, a, a floor manager, I think, and I think I might have put director down, I'm not sure. Um, but I was accepted as an, as an assistant stage manager, so my first paid job at, with the BBC was what they they called um, I can't remember what the, what the term was now but I, I followed another stage, uh, assistant stage manager for about six weeks and then I was allowed on my own uh, and that's when I joined Doctor Who which had started up more or less at the same time uh, So Doctor Who, yes, because people obviously know your name from the end of the credits of the Doctor Who stories that you directed but you were there much earlier you were there in week five which was the first episode of the second story The Daleks That's right um, my first day as an assistant floor manager in my own right, not training somebody else training, that's the word I was trying to remember um, I was sent off to a place in Acton who sold sticky tape that you put on the floors and you could put it down and mark out all the sets and where the doors are and where the angles were and so forth and so on. Uh, so I did this and uh, worked on that show, which Christopher Barry directed, I think. Yep, Chris Barry and Richard Martin did a couple yes, of episodes. Yes, uh, well, I, I was with uh, Chris's team and I stayed with him throughout, although I met Richard quite often. And I enjoy it. I thought this is wonderful, wonderful. Forget the theatre. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy here. <laughs> and um, I got to, well, as I always say it's my only real claim to fame that's ever impressed any of my children. Uh, I was, I manipulated the first da Dalek. I usually say I was the first Dalek. That's well, not quite true. Nobody ever has been a Dalek, really. But, you were the, the sucker at the end I was of episode the, I was one. I the other end you? of the sucker, yes. Uh, and funny that what I, I also, for this podcast, I interviewed Brian, who was the camera. Uh, oh, really? so, so between you and Brian, yes. uh, we've covered the first Dalek. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So that's, that's, a, that's a, and it's a, a very effective cliffhanger, that. And um, you mentioned yes. directed by Christopher Barry, who we sadly passed away not too long ago. Yes. So what do you remember of, of, of Chris? Oh, Chris was enormously helpful to me. Um, when I, six months later or whenever it was, uh, I came back as a just trained director, 
uh, Chris was one, one I went to when I didn't quite know what I was, what this meant or what I should do in which circumstances. It was my first um, f filming as opposed to studio work, which is, had been my total experience up until then, uh, was to go and shoot a very, very short bit for the uh, uh, bi-weekly called Compact. Mm. Um, and in this, somebody fell down some stairs. I think one of the older characters was supposed to fall down some stairs, and they couldn't do this, we couldn't do this in the studio. So it was going to be filmed. So it was a filmed insert of one shot. So we went off to some block of flats um, in behind uh, Shepherd's Bush Green and filmed this. And I hadn't, I'd never been near a film unit. I, I knew quite a lot about, about television by then, but absolutely nothing about film. So I went and knocked on Chris's door and said, "I've got to do this. You know, what what do I do?" And he it was terrific. And he and I subsequently went back and he coached me through my first six months, probably of uh, studio direction and other things that I got to do. And I've always been very grateful to him. He's a, a very sweet, gentle, very, very good director, liked by everybody. And so what about, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you know, we, only a couple of years ago we were looking back at 50 years of Doctor Who, but, you know, you were there, you know, week five, uh, it, was a, it was a brand new programme, so yeah. did you know, I mean, did, did, what was the atmosphere like? Did, did, did anybody know quite what it was that they were, were, were doing? Uh, my impression at the time was that it was tolerated by the BBC sixth floor, rather than um, that they were proud of it because they couldn't really see the point of it. There'd been quite a lot of quarrelling about it early on, as became evident in um, Mark Gatiss's wow. film about it. And it's never, at the time, I, I remember quite clearly people saying it has not had the investment it deserves. Um, and the, the set still wobbled and it, everything looked a bit silly and it was never quite the programme that it wanted to be. Um, I was around when colour came in and we went off on seminars and things and told about colour and how to use it and how not to use it and so forth and so on. And I remember that uh, Barry Letts, who by then was the producer, mm. um, could see a lot of opportunities using colour which had been used already a little bit in what was called colour separation overlay, yeah. which was took ages to do it really meant that if you uh, took out the colours in one shot you could replace what you're taken out with the elements from another shot but it took a lot of setting up and the matching and we used to sit around in the gallery where people in corners fiddled over monitors and things um, but Barry could see that there could be opportunities for the programme using this a little bit more energetically and he and I had a wonderful afternoon, I think it was, at BBC and uh, TV One at, at uh, Shepherd's Bush. And we devised all sorts of experiments, one of which I remember was uh, we got a lot of like little uh, polystyrene balls, pods, um, tidy little ones, and had them all dyed blue, because blue was the colour then, mm -hmm. not green as it is now. And we'd lay a, a, and we got some one or two people, extra people, to come in and be used. And so this guy was lying on this bench with, uh, with those kind of surrounds so that pellets wouldn't fall off. And we slowly dropped these pellets in over the top of him. And 
so that his heat slowly disappeared. And, and uh, it was an effect for dematerializing somebody that, uh, and actually it worked, we did, <laughs> we did use that later on, and lots of other things that we did that same day. The favourite thing <laughs> I did to dispose of somebody on screen was uh, the slow motion equipment that they had then, which nowadays it's dead simple, you just turn them little dial and you can make it go as fast or slow as you like. Then slow motion replay was very special and then we used in sports for horse racing and football and so forth and so on. And it consisted of a huge wheel about this size, about what's that, over a metre uh, round, like a huge gramophone record uh, which had its arm that started on the outside and slowly worked in towards the middle. Each, and it wasn't concentric like it wound in and in and in, it, each one was a complete circle and, and the uh, needle would go from, would hop from one to the next to the next to the next and so if the speed that you rotated it so that you could slow down the action um, and I for some reason found out that if you uh, disturbed this needle it would jump about all over the place so several of the deaths that I <laughs> arranged in Doctor Who were this, we would shoot the material and then in, during the editing put it in, into this system and I would kick the machine so that the <laughs> stylus jumped about from all over the place so you'd get a very kind of jerky look to it um, I got into a lot of trouble with that because it took me ages to get it reset every time ah. But that's it, so you are, I mean, c coming to it from an actor, you know, an interest in theatre and acting, you embrace the technology. I mean, I, I, Paddy Russell, for example, wonderful yeah. director, but the technology was not necessarily yes. her thing. For, yes. But you were quite interested in the mechanics and the technology then. Um, I enjoyed both sides of it, Toby. Um, I, I would like to think of myself as an actor's director, and my later life and my current life have been very involved with actors. Uh, we'll come back to that later if it's interesting mm, to so. um, but at the time well what one wanted from actors then as I perceived it and as we all perceived it was that they, they would um, be interesting, exciting and inventive and not cause too much trouble because it was I mean, it's looking back, I, I punished myself a little bit for this attitude, but that was the way it was. Uh, probably not so much in the, the one-off plays with the big names and the big writers and the big directors, although I've heard some pretty frightening stories about the big directors who were doing that kind of prestige work at the time. Um, but for us, it was just being professional, being able to do what you were being employed to do, um, to do it well and to do it without causing any problems. And that's kind of what the, the environment was. And it was Doctor Who, of all the programmes that I ever worked on, I think was probably the most fun because you could play about with it. You could, could try things out, um, experiment, do be slightly risky and all sorts of things like, like that. Um, things have changed now. It's a completely different programme, of course. Mm. Uh, but they have done exactly what uh, Barry and I tried to do, which is to take advantage of 
changes in technology, improvements, developments in technology, and to use it creatively in a program and make that program more exciting, more interesting, more watchable, more comebackable. Well, I think that, I mean, that, that first Dalek story is extraordinary because it seems to me to take everything of, of the, I, I think the fact it's in black and white mm. is, it means that Chris, you know, Chris, has, Chris Barry has the camera sort of moving very slowly through that city designed by Ray Cusick. You've got a brilliant BBC designer. Yeah. You've got Brian Hodgson's very echoey sounds, Tristram mm. Carey doing very scrapey music. It's really, really it's quite scary, I mean, in, mm. and, and atmospheric. Mm. Um, and it's extraordinary that all those sort of pieces are in place mm. that you identify with being Doctor Who yes. five weeks into the show. Yes. You know, they got, yes. it, they, they got it right pretty yes. much from well, the get-go. It was never the intention, as I understood it. It was going to be uh, a science fiction story one week and uh, ending up somewhere in China or somewhere or Battle of Waterloo or whatever. It was supposed to be educational. Mm. I think was the original idea. And the Daleks came in and spoiled <laughs> it. The Daleks came and spoiled Can you understand why they're successful? Mm. Not really. They, uh, they're very imitatable. Uh, you, can, you can do the voice. Exterminate, exterminate, which was Peter Holiday, I think, originally. Um, Peter Hawkins. Hawkins, that's yeah. right, I beg your pardon. Um, and they're easy to draw. And uh, there's this jokey thing that they can't go upstairs. And there's, there's lots of things about them, I suppose. Um, they are threatening because there is allegedly inside the armour there is a something else, a being of some sort, uh, which I actually played. Of course, you were, you were both <laughs> of the first Daleks. <laughs> well, I was the inside and the outside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was me pushing. Um, a glove made up like some sort of terrible claw up through some sort of hole into some sort of mix of I don't know what sort of governance and my hand came out. And yeah, it's another it's another episode ending where it, yeah it comes from under the cloak and uh, yeah, yeah. we're left upon we never see what becomes of it. No, but uh, yeah. but that was you as well. Yeah. Actually, I've just realised um, talking like this has made me remember my, my actual first experience of a prototype. Dalek was, as you were saying about Ray Cusack, who designed them, and as I was the ASM on it, uh, he uh, you had to put in props lists to the, the designer would give you a list of things that he or she wanted uh, for the set or whatever, or for the development, and I put in props lists for him, which was for uh, children's little um, scooters and all sorts of things little like little cycles little pedal cars and things like that all tiny and I remember um, going there with um, Verity and Raymond and his assistant and somebody else said, oh it was probably Chris uh, while they were trying these out in the design department yeah. corridor <laughs> going up and down the corridor pedalling away and eventually of course they decided that none of this was helpful at all all the thing needed was to be on casters quiet casters, rubber casters uh, with a little seat at the back that an operator could sit on and then could just manipulate the, the, the arms and things with his hands and move it around the studio with his feet when it was in the studio when we were doing that in the studio um, I remember each one was numbered, had a big number on, which I had to put on there, uh, so that Chris or whoever it was could say, would you tell Dalek number two to move a little bit to its left? <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, of the human, I mean, do you remember much of the dynamic with um, that, that quartet of William Hartnell, William Russell, Jacqueline Hill and Caroline Ford? Yeah, I, 
I got on very well with, with Bill. Um, I don't know why. I just he seemed to like me, and I got on well with him. And he asked me to do things, and I would run off and do them, and come back again having done them, and whatever. Um, uh, uh, the others, yeah, they were just they were nice, calm people. They were, there was no sort of real energy within the show at that time that I can remember. It was new, it was untried, everybody was a, perhaps a little bit tentative. I'm talking about the behaviour of people who then were a lot older than I was. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm trying to recall the environment, the, the emotional environment. I think everybody enjoyed doing it because it was very different um, and f uh, potentially fun and potentially long-lasting, which it indeed turned out to be. And Philip Bond's in it as well, who you seem to notice you worked with quite a lot, lot afterwards. Yes, I, I knew Philip quite well. Um, his, uh, his wife, Pat Sands... Oh, was producer I, of The Bell. Yes, yeah. um, was uh, Samantha's mother. Yeah. And she lived just down this road here. Ah. Not very far from where we are now. That's um, Pat Sands, who uh, I got to know very well because a script editor and... Um, I, I worked several things for the BBC, most of which went, didn't go out under my name. Uh, but it was just somebody who, who I admired and liked, both as a producer and as a script editor, and she was just a nice person. Um, uh, very sad that she she died. She, what I do remember about Pat in the, the last, probably the last few weeks of her life when we were all doing the bill in Merton at the studios, which is now Wimbledon Studios. And she kept falling over. And she would fall, if you'd be walking down the corridor, and just fall over, and shrieks of laughter from her. And then people would come and help her up again, and she would stumble on until one day she didn't come in again. Very and, sad. Yeah. And did she know she was ill? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. But just oh, carried yes. on working? Yes, yes. I suppose we all do. You, you, this is the one business, isn't it, where you actually keep you keep going because yeah, it's yeah. the job that you love. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So between you know being a floor manager in, on the Daleks and, and directing the War Machines, obviously a thing had changed as you'd become a, a fully fledged director. Mm. And that was Compact, your first one. Yes. So, yes. so what were your early experiences uh, like at the Beep as a director? I was a little bit nervous to start with. Um, and it was again was the work. Chris was so, so good, um, and helpful. But yeah, I was a new boy, and I was tried out by some of the actors, um, and others were very helpful. Um, I found my feet fairly quickly. I think I don't know why. I just kind of took to it. I kind of understood it, understood what it was. I suppose in a funny kind of way. I don't know why, because um, I hadn't. My theatre experience wasn't particularly extensive. Previously, I had been a stage manager at Hampstead Theatre Club for a while um, and took a show into the West End. Not that I ever got to see it, but uh, I just I felt at home. I suddenly thought, yes, I understand all this. I, I could see quite quickly why things were the way they were, why things had to be done the way they had to be done. And I flourished, and I, I constantly think, why is this? I don't deserve this. I haven't worked hard enough for this, but I was being given and asked to do all sorts of quite prestigious works, um, which I didn't feel ready for at the time, and just about got away with, I hope, in most cases. Well, I have to say, the, the, the War Machines, which very early in your 
directing career doesn't look like the work of a, of a Greener and a Gills director. It's very short, you know, it's got action set pieces. And uh, mm. I really like the way, because I think on paper, you've got lots of potentially interminable scenes between three actors telling the plot to each other, which is John Cater, John Harvey and Alan yeah, Curtis, yeah. sort of shouting at each other about what, what, what Wotan's going to do. Yeah. But the way that you choreograph them means that there's always something in the picture about their positioning in this one set that they're stuck in. And then you go outside and you have great fun with the expanse of film and filming in London, and it's the first, it's the first time Doctor Who's properly sort of come back and had a contemporary story. Yeah, and so it's yeah. a sort of very thrilling... Slightly reminiscent of Quatermass in a way, but not old-fashioned mm. because mm. it's quite thrusting forward. So it's, it's a very dynamic piece. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you like how it looks today? Yeah, I, I, I've never ever thought about this before, uh, Toby, but I'm thinking about it now. But I've, oh, if I hadn't been drawn towards the stage, actors, and subsequently and irredeemably to television, um, I think I probably would have wanted a career as an artist of some sort. I'm very visual. I'm always being told that by people. That's, so I suppose arranging people into a picture, which is more or less what it's about mm. all the time, um, I suppose that's trying to satisfy something in me that I've never really been able to develop. And it's it's part of if there is an art to directing it's part it is that is the the art side of it of making well it's telling stories and it's what you reveal to the audience and what you deny the audience to see and making things look comfortable I suppose um, you know it's it's very bad if you allow the camera to bang the character's nose on the side of the the picture instead of putting it on the putting the whole head on the other side of the picture so the character's looking into space rather than the edge of the screen. It's things like this that, that I suppose came to me almost intuitively. And I'm just thankful for that. I didn't have to need to be taught. It seems in terms of its place in, in Doctor Who though, it's, it seems quite a ruthless period. And in as Lloyd comes in, he gets rid of Peter Purvis almost yeah. to, immediately uh, and then Jackie Lane you, you're there at the crossover of bringing in these two vi again young trusting very 60s companions Michael mm. Craze and Annika Wills and poor old Jackie Lane sort of exits off camera halfway through after yeah. getting hypnotised yeah. uh, there's no, no room for sentiment in Doctor Who yeah. in, in this period I mean is that in as a director was he just very sort of a producer was he just a very sort of business like Innes was lovable everybody liked Innes um, I well, I'm always suspicious when things happen at the BBC. It never, it, sometimes it's never quite what it seems to be about. Ennis was, was charming, highly intelligent and intellectual, um, but very helpful, very comforting. Um, and that was another bonus that I had when I started, that there was no... F the, the, the bogey in the, in the business was... Um, Sydney New, yes, pass up. Yeah. Innes was comfortable to work with, unlike Sydney Newman, who I think everybody went in fear of. And down at the level I was, though I was, I wouldn't say I was intimidated directly by him, but I knew of his behaviour. So, 
Well, um, John Glenister gave me a story where he said, Sidney Newman said to Ted Kotcheff, I dragged you from the gutter. I dragged you up from the gutter. And Ted Kotcheff said, from the gutter to you is up. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful reply. Yes. Very good. Uh, yeah, I like that. So, um, so were, you, were you instrumental in the casting of Michael and uh, Craze and Annika Wills? Or... Because it was their first story. Uh, no. So it, in those days, a lot of the casting was done by producers rather more than the directors because there were no casting directors. There was um, the contracts department uh, who would, could be very helpful. Um, but most of the time, we cast by going through Spotlight, usually somebody we'd seen or already worked with. Mm-hmm. That's why... Um, Juan Marino I worked with several times Bernard Holly I worked with lots of times lots of people um, including Linda Marshall who later became Linda LaPlante um, and she was in my little rep for, for two or three years and I think I worked three or four times with her playing different kinds of parts uh, one in Zegkars which I remember ex- extremely well it was called The Nisbets Are Back which started off with one of the PCs and a car looking out of the window seeing a family with suitcases and getting on his radio and saying da 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 the Nisbets are back <laughs> and it was this terrible family with Hilda Braid played the mother <laughs> she knows you know yeah um, and there were t- two children and Linda played one of them and I shall never remember it just because it made me laugh so much they were, the family was sitting around having dinner or supper or something um, and I was going to do single shots on each of them. And we came to, to, to Linda, and she was sitting there, brushing her hair, which was quite long, but she'd brushed it, a lot of it, forward, so the whole of her head was surrounded by this kind of bell tent of hair. <laughs> so none, none of the cameras could get a shot of her face at all because it was <laughs> she was brushing it. <laughs> but I used it, I was just sort of so... So lovely. Nice and Clever. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that's yeah. what you want from actors. You want them to bring things, but not to, and to, to be able to say, yes, that's a wonderful idea, but for them not to get upset if you say, well, I think it's a lovely idea, but actually I don't think it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, it's a fine line, isn't it, between a bit of business augmenting a scene and distracting from yeah. it. And yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you've got some nice... I think John Cater in, in mm. The War Machines is, is, is lovely. It's a mm. lovely performance that he gives. And, and William Mervyn, of course, it was, quite, it was big news. Mm. It was a big guest star to be casting, mm. yes. William Mervyn. Yes. Um, and uh, various characters... I mean, Frank Jarvis right down the bottom of the... You know, they're all good character actors yes. uh, crossing paths with, uh, with William Hartnell. Who had, he, had he changed uh, between the Daleks and the War Machines? I mean, it was towards the end of his, mm. his time on the show. Mm. Uh, I don't know, when I went back as a director, uh, he remembered me and we got on well. Uh, and he, on the whole, he behaved pretty well. It's, I don't remember any tantrums or he could, could get grumpy. He, could, he had a very, he could put on a good sour face. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody would go, oh, don't go near Bill. But, um, I, I enjoyed now, you, <coughs> I've got a slight bone to pick with you, Michael, but because because of you, there is now debate has raged ever since. Uh, it's because the end of episode one of the War Machines has the infamous line, "Doctor Who is required. Yes. Bring him here." <laughs> uh, and of course, we all know he's not called Doctor Who, or is he? 
But uh, it's amazing how something that probably you didn't give two thoughts to is now something that is hugely debated <laughs> 40 odd years later. Well, I would like to see the script. Because if it was in the script, I would. Yes, yeah, it would have been in the script. It would have been I, in the script. I don't think it was a, a mis- an on the floor mistake. No, no, it's, in the, it's definitely in the script. Toby, yeah. I have absolutely no recollection no. of that. <laughs> of course, can't you expect you to? Although I know it's become a, a, a core celeb yeah. since then. And do you, do you think it stands? I mean, you did the DVD commentary. Do you think it's? Do you think it stands up? I think all that stuff shot in. It's a brilliant shot of a of a war machine in reflected in the puddle, and there's a or there's a, and there's a spinning bike wheel, and so there's yeah. some great stuff that you get in in London yeah, on I think, location. I think all directors were trying to do that all the time, and later on, again we'll come back to my later beliefs and philosophies but at, certainly at that time directors were a bit show-offy and, and, which is fa- fair enough and making it interesting trying to do interesting things but Philip Hammond notoriously was, was a very good director and much liked but he was infamous for about 50% of his shots uh, would be in mirrors or reflected in glass of some sort or another or car mirrors or something. You very, very seldom shot straight onto people's faces. <laughs> and you, you give it a... a I mentioned it's a bit like Quatermass because a lot of that is people watching stuff on pubs in the telly, yeah. uh, telly in the pubs, yes, you know, yes. it unfolds through the media which somehow yes. makes it more dramatic. Um, and you, I think, I think it's for the first time, have people play... Because Dwight Wiley was a BBC radio announcer yes. and he announces about the war machines and Kenneth Kendall is yes, a BBC yes. newsreader. So yes, yes. Um, that's quite nice, getting real people in yes, to, to yes, do their own yes, things. Yes. Yeah. For some reason, actors are not very good at doing being news people. I don't know why. I've noticed it several times. If they're supposed to be reporters on the streets and, and an actor does it, I don't know quite why it is. Um, so, after the war machine, you don't come back to, to, to Doctor Who for a bit. It's, it's funny with you because you sort of you pop in and out with huge gaps in between sometimes. Mm. So, what what were the jobs that you were enjoying doing outside of uh, Doctor Who in the in the sixties while we're still in black and white? Well, I enjoyed Out of the Unknown, which um, was a series of complete plays, I suppose, um, or films or whatever. Uh, but that was fun. Um, um, did a series called The Man Outside for Derek Sherman, who was a producer I worked with and knew very well, actually, knew his family. Uh, and that, that was good. And there was a number of other things. I did uh, a thriller serial called The Dark Number quite early on, which I liked very much indeed, because we shot a lot of that in Glasgow. Well, and then you uh, did Patrick Troughton and um, The Seeds of Death... You've, uh, the Ice Warriors are quite uh, popular monsters with Doctor Who, but, and, and Patrick is an extremely popular Doctor, so what were your impressions of, of Patrick as, as, a, as an actor be to work with? Uh, yes. Well, there are different kinds of Doctors, I think. Pat was, I think, with respect to the others, the, by far the better actor, or the best actor. Yes. Um, and he was the most cerebral he, I, looking back, I th- feel a little bit that he struggled to make him interesting in ways which were external, like he played the recorder, um, which is fine. Uh, I believed in what he was doing, but I didn't believe he was a Time Lord, I think, 
is what I feel about it, nor did I feel the same thing about John Pertwee. Um, that may simply be because Bill had established the look of a Time Lord, if you like, so clearly um, that more people interfered with it as, as my involvement with it and as time went on. The less and less these people became Time Lords, they just became actors who found some sort of gimmicky costume. And uh, I've always felt in a way that's a shame. That there should be something about the character which is passed on. And I think, I think Bill had it. I don't quite know why. Maybe because, I don't know, it's this terrible thing if when things change. They're always not as good as the first one. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, the film of the book is never as good as the book. Of course, yeah. Um, but there have been a succession of Doctor Who's who have been absolutely wonderful and exciting actors. And there have been others who didn't persuade me that they had the, the, the same thing about them which made them timeless and brilliant geniuses, which is what it's supposed to be. My thanks to Michael. Um, we've only just touched upon the beginnings of his Doctor Who work. More from him in the next edition where he will nominate his charity. So I'll tell you about that now because it's a long one. You get to do it twice. Uh, it's Shooting Star Chase, uh, which is www.shootingstarchase, all one word, shootingstarchase.org.uk, which is a charity concerned with children with life-limiting conditions. So if you could donate... That would be lovely. Uh, I'm Toby Haydock. I'm on Twitter at, at Toby Haydock, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. And uh, you can have another edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round absolutely free uh, pretty much the same time next week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Michael Ferguson. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. What's all this then? What are you two up to? Hiding in the bushes to ambush the unwary? Mrs. Turner. You didn't have to tell her. And I'm the doctor. And your name's Lara. Isn't How do you it? know? We won't hurt you. Transmat barring up. Doctor, you are not leaving me here. I remember. It is not our way. The hungerers give nothing to the world and we take nothing from them. We're not going inside some rough old pub. <laughs> Come along, friend Turlo. Why do you want the storyteller anyway? Are you kidding? Look at us. But it's led me to three different statuses. We're perfectly nice and reasonable people, actually. Oh, no. I've just realised something. Where are you going? Down to the village before it's too late. Here we go again. Doctor Who, The Memory Bank and Other Stories. Big Finish. We love stories.